I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to my message, Why We Must Follow the Commandments, in which my point is that you can't wait for your spouse to become perfect before you decide to obey God any more than Jesus could wait for us to become perfect before he decided to die on the cross for us. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. January 27th, and our lesson for the morning is why we must follow the commandments. Our text is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 and 25, which read as follows. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear our message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We attend church to obtain the mind of Christ, meaning to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, in our last discussion on this topic, we consistently, insistently, and persistently focused on a question pertaining to the interpretation of the passages of Scripture that we have as our text. The question had to do with the timing, the sequence, and the priority of how these passages of Scripture should be applied in our marriages. Should a wife submit to her husband before she is sure that her husband will treat her in an understanding, compassionate, tender-hearted, courteous, loving manner? Now, most of the adults in this room have lived through the civil rights movement and the women's liberation movement, a time in which equality, freedom, and liberation from oppression have been the social focus of our society. And based upon our upbringing, we know of no nobler political statement that we live than that we live in one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. However, if we operate from the context of the absolute personal liberty that the Constitution promises, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 to 24 seem to be an anachronism, something that takes women back to the days of inequality. Could the Bible actually mean what it says? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body? Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, in the light of the strides that we have made 
toward racial equality, we ask ourselves, did God actually intend for such a statement to be part of his word? In the light of the stride that we have made toward gender equality, we ask ourselves, did God actually intend for such a statement to be part of his word? Paul the author of Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, also tells us in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, but as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, in patience. The older women likewise, that they may be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And since we find the teaching of the Apostle Paul to be redundant on these issues, let us go to Peter, who tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-8, through 8, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Husbands, likewise, Dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. So Peter and Paul, the two pillars of the New Testament church, have consistent instructions on this issue. Church doctrine is that this is because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, God himself is the author of Scripture, and his inspiration makes the Scripture consistent so that we can develop coherent doctrines from his word. And I think that we have quoted enough scripture to sufficiently develop the doctrine that God commands wives to obey their husbands and husbands to love their wives. However, the question that came, up, that came from our last discussion on this subject is, 
Should a wife submit to her husband before she is sure that her husband will treat her in an understanding, compassionate, tender-hearted, courteous, loving manner? Now, the first logical point when considering this question is that the determination of the husband's obedience to the commandment to love his wife should be made before the marriage begins. Keep in mind that no one in our community can be coerced into marriage. Listen to the words of the traditional wedding ceremony. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable state of being instituted by God, signifying to us the mystical union that is between Christ and his church which holy state of being Christ ordained and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee and is commended of St. Paul to be honorable among all and therefore is not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. Into this holy state of being, these two persons present come now to be joined. If anyone can show just cause why they may not lawfully be joined together, let him now speak or else hereafter forever hold his peace. Now, as a minister, I am charged with the responsibility of asking each couple that I marry whether they are entering into marriage reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. What does this mean? Have you reverently prayed and sought the will of God for this marriage? Have you discreetly investigated the bona fides of your intended spouse to ascertain that you know the character of the person whom you are marrying? Have you been advised by someone with sufficient experience and knowledge to ascertain that your spouse is, is to be an objectively suitable person, that your spouse to be is an objectively suitable person, rather. Are you entering this marriage after a sober, objective evaluation of yourself and your intended spouse? Do you understand the terms of marriage to which God will hold you responsible? Now, Jesus tells us, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 6 and verse 9, And Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. So marriage is intended by God to be a permanent relationship, broken only by the sin of adultery. Divorce and remarriage are defined by God in verse 9 of Matthew 19 as 
adultery. I know that this definition conflicts with our civil laws, but there is no civil jurisdiction in Christ's kingdom. So the question for those entering into marriage is, have you done your due diligence? And have you intelligently evaluated the situation into which you are entering? How well do you know this person and how sure are you that they will follow the commandments of God concerning marriage? Since the scripture commands a wife's obedience to her husband, I am led to the conclusion that the time for evaluating whether or not the person that you marry loves you is before the marriage. Now, as part of the wedding ceremony, the father of the bride or some other sufficiently close male relative has the responsibility of giving the bride to the groom. In our time, this is generally considered to be just a formality, but the real purpose of this part of the ceremony is to make sure that the bride has received the blessing of her father, the man who ostensibly has her best interest at heart and has taken the time to ascertain that the man whom the bride is marrying meets their specification for a husband. Now, if brides and their families took the 18 months to two years necessary to evaluate the groom properly and then made a marital decision after an objective evaluation, it would be less likely that the question of the groom's love would be an issue. However, in our culture, the decision to marry may not be based upon an objective evaluation of suitability, but on an emotional evaluation of euphoria. The question asked before marriage may not be, is this person suitable as a spouse, but does this person make me feel as though I am in love? Now, a counselor's secretary announced that a client had come to the office and needed to speak to the counselor immediately. The counselor told the secretary to show the client in, fully expecting to see her burst into tears and tell some tragic story as soon as the door was closed. Instead, the client virtually skipped into the office and, and beaming with excitement. How are you today, Janice? asked the counselor. Great, she said. I've never been better in my life. I'm getting married. You are, the surprise counselor said. To whom and when? To David Gillespie, she exclaimed, in September. Well, now that's exciting. How long have you been dating? Three weeks, said the client. I know it's crazy after all the people I have dated and the number of times that I came so close to getting married. I can't believe it myself, but I know that David is the one for me. From the first date, we both knew it. Of course, we didn't talk about it on that first night, but one week later, he asked me to marry him. I knew he was going to ask me, and I knew I was going to say yes. I have never felt this way before. You know about the relationship that I have had through the years and the struggles that I have had, and in every relationship, something was not right. But I never felt at peace about marrying any of them, but I know that David is the right one. By this time, Janice was rocking back and forth in her chair, giggling and saying, I know it's crazy, but I'm so happy. I've never been this happy in my life. Now Janice has fallen in love. In her mind, 
David is the most wonderful man she has ever met. He is perfect in every way. He will make the ideal husband. She thinks about him night and day. The facts are that David has been married twice before, has three children, and has had three jobs in the past year. Those facts are trivial to Janice. She's happy. She's convinced that she's going to be happy forever with David. She is in love. Now, how do we fall in love? We meet someone whose physical characteristics and personality traits create enough electrical shock to trigger our love alert system. The bells go off, and we set in motion the process of getting to know the person. The first step may be sharing a meal, but our real interest is not in the food. We are on a quest to discover love. Could this warm, tingly feeling that I have inside be the real thing? Sometimes we lose the tingles on the first date. Other times, however, the tingles are stronger after the first date than before. We arrange for a few more together experiences, and before long, the level of intensity has increased to the point where we find ourselves saying, I think I'm falling in love. Eventually, we are convinced that it is the real thing, and we tell the other person, hoping that the feeling is reciprocal. If it isn't, things cool off a bit, or we redouble our efforts to impress and eventually win the love of, love of our beloved. And when it is reciprocal, we start talking about marriage because everyone agrees that being in love is the necessary foundation for a good marriage. Now, the person who is in love has the illusion that his beloved is perfect. His mother can see the flaws, but he can't. His mother says, darling, have you considered that she has been under psychiatric care for five years? But he replies, oh, mother, give me a break. She's been out for three months now. His friends also can see flaws, but are not likely to tell him unless he asks. And chances are he won't ask because in his mind, she is perfect. And what others think doesn't matter. Unfortunately, the, quote, in love, unquote, experience is not a permanent one. Psychologist Dr. Dorothy Tenoff has coined the term limerence to describe the experience of being in this highly charged emotional state, distinguishing limerence, the in love state, from a more mature love, one in which people have done the type of due diligence in, of which I spoke in describing the foundation for marriage. After studying the anecdotal evidence of over 500 individuals, Dr. Tinoff's research concluded that the average lifespan of the romantic obsession she calls limerence is two years. Now, some of the attributes of limerence are as follows. Constant thinking about the limerent person. Vivid imagination that some action by the limerent person means that the feelings are reciprocated. Acute sensitivity to any act, thought, or condition that can be interpreted favorably, and an extraordinary ability to devise or invent reasonable explanations for why neutral actions are a sign of hidden passion in the limerent object, and a general intensity of feeling that leaves other concerns in the background. 
Now, once limerence wears off, your ability to emphasize that which is admirable to the exclusion of that which is negative goes away as well. Your beloved spouse is no longer perfect, but becomes a human being with all the faults and foibles of any other human being. Remember Romans 3.23, which tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, while limerence is largely emotionally driven and may even be irrational to some degree, biblical love, the product of, of the spiritual growth of a person in a biblically-based marriage, is defined as a set of character-based actions. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4-8 through 8 describes, Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now, a person exhibiting biblical love has decided to be patient with, kind to, not envious of, not rude with, not easily angered by the object of their affections. Biblical love understands that the, that the nature of a mature love relationship requires perseverance. And when you come to the conclusion that your decision to marry was based upon limerence rather than love, it is quite possible that you will feel that you are entitled to a do-over once the limerence that motivated your marriage wears off. And so thus, our current question. If we are married without fully using our rational ability to discern the qualities of our spouse, and after a couple of years, the limerence has faded, and we finally have a more realistic perception of the person that we married, are we liable for the vows that we made in an emotional rather than rational state? Should the person that we married not have to prove himself once again since we were not looking at him rationally when we married him? Now, in our civil jurisdiction, we have no-fault divorce law. People emerging from a state of limerence often want a do-over. However, the Bible does not allow for a do-over, nor does it allow for disobedience to the biblical terms of marriage because of a change of feelings. The reason that God commands us to act with love toward the one that we have married is that we can only have the happy marriage that we want should we choose to override our feelings and act based upon our commitments. You cannot improve your marital situation by failing to act according to your pledge to love your spouse. Listen to your vows. I take you to be my wedded wife, to be my wedded spouse rather, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, according to God's holy ordinance, and thereto I pledge you my faith.
Now, I hope that you can see the basis for the for better or worse part of the marriage vow. You should also understand that God anticipates that the for worse part is coming. Matthew 24, 10 tells us, and then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. We live in a world of sin. We are all sinners. It is not reasonable to withhold love from our spouse until he or she is perfect. If we waited for perfection, no one would ever be able to stay married. The process that leads the two to become one is described in 2 Peter 3.18, which says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Your husband or wife is not perfect, but neither are you. God commands us to grow together, and we can only do so by following the marital commandments that God gives us and to have faith and trust that he is navigating the circumstances of our lives and will gather us together under the authority of his word. Now, I listened to the testimony of a brother in this town that liked to drink and party. He married a Christian young woman because he wanted a good mother for his children, someone who would be home with them while he was out at the party. They had six children, as I remember, and during the years that his children were growing up, he spent his weekends out at the party while his wife faithfully brought the children to church. He told me that he came in one Sunday morning from being out all night, and as he came through the door, his wife was in the kitchen cooking breakfast and his children, now grown, were there with her. She had anticipated his arrival and had breakfast ready for him. She and his children greeted him, and although he had just come in from a night of partying, they sat, ate, and talked, and had a wonderful breakfast together. She and the children then left for church while he started upstairs to get some sleep. But, as he told me, he couldn't sleep. He wondered within himself while she, why she and the children would treat him so well when he had virtually abandoned them for the party life. Why would they take the time on their way to church to give him such a pleasant morning when he had been out all night? He decided to get up and go to church to see what was going on there that made his wife and children treat him the way that they did. He found them and sat with them while the pastor talked about how Jesus Christ died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven. He heard the story of Jesus many times, but this time it finally sunk in. The story of Jesus is a story of forgiveness. And when the preacher opened the doors of the church, the man decided that he had spent enough time forsaking his family, partying and doing things that he ought not do. The man realized that he had a better time sitting in the kitchen that morning with his wife and children than he had had at the party. The man recognized that he was better off with the love that his wife and children showed him 
which came from their understanding of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ gave us in his sacrifice on the cross. He decided that Sunday morning after breakfast that he had been on the wrong track, that he should take the opportunity that the preacher was giving him to align himself with Jesus Christ. So he joined the church and decided to turn over a new leaf. He did so. And a couple of years later, he had a stroke. He lasted a while after that, and then he died. He was saved because his wife decided to keep her vows, regardless of the fact that he was not a perfect husband. No, you can't suspend or forsake your vows because you are not happy with your spouse. That is just not part of the deal. Jesus Christ was not happy on the way to the cross. As he was being lied on by the scribes and Pharisees, he was not happy about the situation. As he was being beaten almost to death by the Roman soldiers in the basement of the fortress Antonia, he was not happy about the situation. As Jesus carried the old rugged cross up Calvary's hill, he was not happy about the situation. As the Roman soldiers drove the nail into Jesus' hands and feet, he was not happy about the situation. As God turned out the sun so that he could pour down the punishment that you and I are owed for the sins that we have committed upon Jesus, he was not happy about the situation. During all the cruelty, during all the pain, all of the agony, all of the suffering, Jesus was not happy about the situation. He cried and sweated blood in Gethsemane, just anticipating it. Jesus was not happy about the situation, but Jesus persevered. Compare your complaints about the way your spouse treats you to the way that they treated Jesus. But why did Jesus persevere? Well, why did that wife treat her husband so well after he stayed out all night? Both Jesus and the wife endured the pain that was inflicted upon them because that is how people are changed. The sufferings of Jesus changed the apostles from a band of cowards to the greatest preachers in world history, all of whom died preaching of Jesus Christ, whom they had previously forsaken. The suffering of the apostles eventually changed the Roman worship from pagan idol worship into the Roman Catholic Church. The suffering of spouses, much like the lady who persevered through her many years of suffering, a lack of companionship for her spouse, brings spouses to the Lord and helps them to grow spiritually. No, you can't wait to start obeying your husband until he are sure that he loves you. No, you can't wait to start showing love to your wife until you are sure that she is going to obey you. You can't wait for your spouse to become perfect before you decide to obey God any more than Jesus could wait for us to become perfect before he decided to die on the cross for us. Like Jesus, you have to make the sacrifice first before your marriage can rise from the dead. 
In fact, it may be that your marriage can only rise from the dead if you choose to make the sacrifice to follow the commandment of God that God has given us, regardless of how you feel about doing so. The biblical story of Naaman the Syrian is most instructive. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1 through 14. The Bible says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who was in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who was from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send the letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. And it happened, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was, when Elijah the man of God heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And went away and said, I indeed said to myself, he will surely come out to me and stand and call on, on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not stop in this, washing them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father... If the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, and according to, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, had it not been for his servants, Naaman would have missed his blessing because of his pride. Naaman wanted the man of God to make some type of fuss over him, but the man of God simply gave Naaman the instructions that would fix his trouble and the choice as to whether or not to obey. I hope that you see my point. God is telling you, ladies, that there is a blessing in it for you should you choose to obey him by obeying your husband. Maybe you can't see it, 
But remember that Naaman couldn't see the wisdom of dipping in the Jordan seven times. God is telling us brothers that there is a blessing for us should we choose to treat our wives with love. Maybe our wives don't deserve it, but remember that Naaman wasn't healed because he was worthy. He was healed because he chose to obey the man of God. So let us today choose to obey the word of God. Ephesians 5, 22 and 25 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Obey your husband and love your wife. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson that you have given us. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to be like Naaman, who was persuaded by his servants to obey that which the, the man of God told him, regardless of the fact that it was not what he expected. And we ask you, Lord, to help us to set aside our expectations to set aside our own thinking and to follow the commandments that you have given us, knowing that the reason that your commandments are correct is because you stand behind them with your mercy and your power and your grace and that you will rectify our situations if we will just do that which you tell us to do. And now Lord, we thank you for all that in the house today. And we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and thank God. Thank you for listening. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com.